Please uh, grab a Bible and turn to Colossians 3. Colossians 3. If you've been with us for the last couple of months, you've known that I've been doing a little mini-series here in Colossians chapter 3. And I kind of want to conclude our time uh, as we've looked at several things. The book of Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul to a people that he never met, to a local body uh, that he needed to encourage, to uh, encourage them to remain faithful. And in that, he wrote very extensively on the impact of the gospel in the life of a believer. How does Jesus change my life? That's been the, the ultimate theme of Colossians 3 thus far. A life that's raised with Christ seeks and aims for Christ. That's seen by putting off and putting on the new man, putting off the old man, putting on the new man. And Paul walked through the front door of every home last week and began to address the wife, the husband, the children, and the parents. And demonstrating the wonderful power and redeeming work of the gospel and the life of an individual. And really, he's continuing in that. It really, our section 318 through 41 has often been called the household code. And this wouldn't be an out of place text, verses 22 through 41, in the minds of that original audience as they heard this. But we're going to look at that more here in a moment. But really what we're looking at this morning for you and I is how the redemption of Christ changes our work. I'm entitled this morning's message, The Christian's Work. came across an article this past week written by an, a pastor that was taken back by counseling. And it wasn't the fact that he wasn't prepared to counsel as a pastor. It was just what he was counseling on most regularly. And it was on work. And it wasn't that his congregation was struggling with making their career or work an idol. He mentioned that they were able to navigate that pretty well, but it was the fact that he was constantly addressing the apathy and the grumbling that he heard amongst his congregation. Work is a gift from God. Work is a means by which we provide for our families. But work for some is a struggle. And Christ redeems our hearts and our minds on our attitude towards work. And really what I'd like to do is I'd like to begin further back. I'd like to begin in history, our church history, by looking at a certain period of time that really brought this to light. For the last several months, almost really over a year now, we've been walking verse by verse expositionally through the book of Romans. It's been very clear through our time in this book that Paul has painted that justification is by faith alone and Christ alone. This is a beautiful doctrine that we can appreciate and we value as the body and church of Christ. But this has not always been the case. 
Actually, there was a time where it was prominent and most uh, uh, familiar and popular amongst most in the church that justification was by works. And this is really what we're, where we find the medieval church had deviated from Scripture and implemented a theology of justification by works. We're a little over a month away from celebration Reformation Day. October 31st, our culture celebrates Halloween. We, as the body of Christ, and as Protestants, we celebrate the Reformation. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis on the castle church there in Wittenberg, Germany, and it was from this point on that the Reformation began. Luther, actually, at the time of nailing the thesis, was not a believer in Jesus Christ. Actually, he was a faithful and devout Roman monk, Catholic monk, who loved his religion, who believed that his religion taught that his good works is what brought him near to God. His life was marked by identifying any sin in his life and trying to confess that continually, not depending upon Christ Jesus, but continuing on reverting back to good works. He was upset on this October 31st because of a man named Johann Tetzel. Tetzel was commissioned by the Roman uh, church to go and sell indulgences. Indulgences were nothing more than a promise that the Pope would receive your gift and give you time off in purgatory. It seems so distant from what we believe as evangelicals today, but this was the norm at the time in the medieval church. They believed that from this life to the next, you would have to spend time in purgatory. They also believed that the Catholic Church, and especially the Pope, had the power to cut that time in half or off. They believe in a treasury of, of grace that had been built up over the years that they could give out and allot to anyone they choose, chose to. It was actually a very sad and depressing thing to consider. They taught that one could shave time off by indulgences, buying them, doing good, or even visiting relics in certain places such as Rome. The church's intent for selling the indulgences at this time, though, was based on one thing, money. See, they had hired a very famous artist called Michelangelo to paint uh, the Sistine Chapel at St. Peter's Cathedral, and they needed money and the funds to pay for this. So what they thought the best thing to do was to sell, to give people the opportunity to wipe away time in purgatory. The individual, Tetzel, he would plea with people, peasants, to just give even their last coin away so that they could purchase an indulgence. And usually these indulgences would be for deceased family members. He would plead with them, wouldn't you want to release your mother, your father, your grandfather, your wife, your husband? Your child, wouldn't you want to release them from purgatory? He had a little jingle. As soon as the coin and the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. 
Luther was opposed to this, not because it was an offense to Christ, but to his religion. It's not that Jesus wasn't important to the Roman Catholic. It's just that he couldn't get you all the way there. I just heard a very simple uh, illustration to kind of uh, grasp their theology of salvation at this time. It was as if you were drowning in a pool and Christ comes in, dives in, and instead of pulling you out of the pool, he just pulls you over to the side and you are dependent upon your own self and ability to climb out of the pool. For Luther and many others, the latter was good works, and that was the means. Confessions, going to mass, taking of the supper, the table. This was the means by which they were to be made right with God. Wrong as it was, he was passionate about it. So back then, just like anybody else, when you had an issue, he wanted to have a public conversation. So what did he do? He logged into Facebook and posted it's not the case. He went to the church door and posted his 95 thesis, nailing it there. And all he wanted was a public conversation. He had no idea what would come from this, but it would begin the Reformation. And it's from this point on that he and several others would discover the word of God and discover the true gospel and be saved and redeemed. Then they would spend time writing and, and, and discovering the true biblical doctrines that we uh, stand upon as the body of Christ. And from the Reformation, we have five key doctrines, the five solas, scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, to the glory of of God alone. For centuries leading up to the Reformation, the average believer did not have the Word of God. It wasn't accessible to them. Actually, the sermons were, were preached in Latin, and the only copy of God's Word was not in a household, usually within a, 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 a church or in schools, and it would be the Latin Vulgate, which most common individuals wouldn't have access to know. But it was from the Reformation that Bible translation and the average believer could have God's word in their own language, in German and French and English. And they could begin to discover for themselves the truths of who God was. The true gospel was proclaimed by grace alone and faith alone and Christ alone. And the whole person was redeemed during this time to the glory of God alone. And it's really that last sola, that last point, where we find the wonderful doctrine of vocation. And really what it's answering is, since I'm justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, are my good works useless? The answer is no. Christ has redeemed those. So how does Christ change my Monday through Saturday. He changes all of our lives. And this is where Luther and many others wrote on the doctrine of vocation. Luther wrote, What seem to be secular works are actually the praise of God and represent an obedience which is well-pleasing to him. Household work may have no obvious appearance of holiness, yet those very household chores are more to be valued than all the works amongst 
and nuns. It was in the medieval church that they believed the only vocation that mattered were those that were in monasteries, the bishops, the popes, the priests. One commentator says, We do not need to leave the world to go into a monastery to serve God. We glorify God in all of life. There's no hierarchy of profession in God's sight. Therefore, your work, dear friend, if you are in Christ Jesus, has been redeemed for his glory. And that's where we're landing this morning. Our church family is made up of many professions, warehouse workers, construction workers, arborists, countertop specialists. I mean, we have uh, appliance salesmen. It goes on and on and on. Some of us are retired. Some of us stay at home. But we have a work every single week, and it should be redeemed by Christ. There's a very interesting thing when you consider that the average worker spends 40 hours a week at a job, the average American, by the end of his life, will spend an average of 90,000 hours in his lifetime working. 90,000 hours would be given to work. It's a huge part of our lives, and it has been redeemed by Christ. Our text this morning seems a little out of place. Bond servants, or as some translations have it, slaves. But really what we have here is work. Paul moves from the family members to bond servants. And it's because at that time there wasn't very many households that didn't have a slave present in it. That they wouldn't have doing things for them, working for them. For the many, uh, they would have this. Slavery, we have uh, we see it in the Old Testament. We see it as a means uh, in the law for a family to meet their basic needs. But slavery was also utilized by Egypt to oppress the Israelites. The New Testament, though, never condemns it. But we see instructions here with Paul and Colossians, also in Ephesians, Peter and his first epistle. Paul even encourages Onesimus, a runaway slave, to return to Philemon. So slavery and the Roman Empire was a huge institution. It's believed that there was 60 million slaves that covered half of the Roman Empire at that time. Slaves held every type of position. They were teachers, doctors, artists, musicians, anything that you could possibly think of, slaves held that position. It was thought that if you were wealthy, you did no work whatsoever. And so slaves were the ones that would do that. Some were born into slavery, some sold themselves into slavery to pay off debts, and some were taken forcibly into slavery. Paul addresses the slaves, the bond servants, and the masters. There's nothing really like this in our society and culture today other than the worker and the employer. And that's where we'll be headed this morning. Paul really describes six things here in our passage to describe the Christian worker. Six things that he describes the Christian worker. First, let's look at the Christian workers are to obey. They're obedient. A Christian worker is obedient. Look at verse 22. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. There's only two commands in our passage here in 3.22 and again in 4.1 with the masters and they're treating their slaves or bondservants in a 
just, and fair way. Just as we looked last week for a child or servant to obey means to obey on the basis of paying attention. It wasn't uncommon during the first century for these servants to actually pick up the trade of their masters and then go on after their time of service was completed to begin their own business. Some masters even would invest in these businesses of their former servants. And it was in these times that the servants were apprentices, that they were learning the trade of their masters, whether fishing, carpentry, pottery, sailing, tent making, whatever it might have been. And it was in this time that they needed to be obedient, paying attention to the instructions they were given. This is sometimes countercultural today in the workplace. In the secular workforce, you can see oftentimes that the boss is looked, out, uh, looked on with contempt, with, with disregard, with disrespect by fellow co-workers. It's almost a, a, a positive thing, a celebrated thing to oppose leadership and the employer. Paul instructs a Christian worker, though, to instead to be obedient, obedient. Now, this obedience has its limits. If a master or, or a boss requires us to sin, we can't go that far. But for the most part, our lives as workers, wherever we're at, should be marked by obedience. If there's protocols, job descriptions, rules and regulations, policies, these things should be met by the Christian worker. They're marked in general by their co-workers and their boss as obedient workers. It's a mark of a believer, a Christian worker. Kids, you might think, oh, I'm free from this. I don't have a job Monday through Friday. No, you do. You have a job, and that is school. You have teachers, whether public school or homeschool. You have teachers. You have someone you were called to be obedient to. How well... Do you obey at school? The Christian workers are to be obedient. Number two, the Christian workers are not to be people pleasers. Look at what Paul writes. They're to obey in everything, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers. Now, this eye service has the meaning of doing your work to gain attention. Or another way of saying it is, you only work when the boss is around. Hopefully this is not an experience or a way of you're doing your work, but this shouldn't be the case. Now you might say, well, I want my boss, I want my co-workers to see that I'm a hard worker, and that's good, and we'll look at that in a moment. But Paul is addressing the heart here. He goes on, should not be people pleasers. A man-pleaser or a people-pleaser is one who wins favor and whose desires are met when they gain the praise and attention of others. People-pleasers. Really, the implication here Paul is pointing out is that they will often forfeit pleasing the Lord or even disregard some biblical principle just to have the praise of man. This shouldn't be the case. We should not be people pleasers. In his book, Ed Welch wrote about people pleasing. 
entitled, When People Are Big and God is Small. He has several diagnostic questions here. They're very helpful. And, and considering whether, am I a people pleaser? Are you overcommitted? Do you find that it is hard to say no, even when wisdom indicates that you should? Do you ever feel as if you might be exposed as an imposter? Are you always second-guessing decisions because of what other people might think? Are you afraid of making mistakes that will make you look bad in other people's eyes? Do you get easily embarrassed? If so, people and their perceived opinions probably define you, or you exalt their opinions to the point where you are ruled by them. Do you ever lie, especially the little white lies? What about cover-ups where you are not technically lying with your mouth? Are you jealous of other people? For the Christian, they've been redeemed. As they consider people-pleasing, this should not be a part of us. Now, it goes beyond just the workforce. Sadly, we have trouble being people-pleasers amongst one another. Fearing man over fearing God, and it just ought not be that way. But at the same time, even though we don't want to be people-pleasers, we do want to serve others. That's the beauty of good works. Good works are an outflow of what Christ has done in us, and they should impact others. Luther writes on this. He says, man, however, needs none of these things, good works, for his righteousness and salvation. Therefore, he should be guided in all his works by this thought and contemplate this one thing alone, that he may serve and benefit others in all that he does, considering nothing except the need and advantage of his neighbor. There's a great joy in the fact that we don't serve others in the sense that we want their praise, but we do want to do good towards our fellow neighbor, our fellow coworker, our friends. So the Christian worker is not a people pleaser. But in contrast, number three, a Christian worker is to fear the Lord, is to fear the Lord. Paul writes, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. A sincere heart. The sincere heart, meaning there's an honest motivation. And that motivation is the fear of the Lord. Speaking of the reverence to Christ. This is not outside or, or something that he hasn't written already. We are to live according to Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as it is fitting in the Lord. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Servants, workers, fear the Lord. We obey out of respect and reverence to Christ. A servant obeys their master because they submit to Christ first. As workers, our obedience to our employers will be a byproduct of our reverence and submission to Christ. We just finished the book of Proverbs. 
a very sweet book that highlights the fear of the Lord. In Proverbs 9.10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Verse 18, verse 8, chapter 8, verse 13 of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance, and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. For the Christian worker, what we put our hands to, what we do through the week, we want to do what's right and abhor what is evil. We want to fear and respect the Lord above man. It's the contrast that we have here. And it really leads into the fourth description of a worker in Christ. They are to work hard for the Lord. Christians should be hard workers. If you were to walk into a business, you should be able to identify those hard workers and Lord willing, they would represent the body of Christ, a true believer. We are to be hard workers. Look at what Paul says. Whatever you do, work heartily. This word heartily also can be translated soul. It's the idea of working with all that's within you. So if your job requires you thinking and creating and designing, you want to create and design to the best of your abilities. If your job requires you using your hands and building, you want to build and use your hands to the best of your ability. If it calls you to interact with customers, you want to interact in the most God-honoring way possible. You want to do it with everything you've got, consciously aware, and being sure that you are giving everything unto the Lord. We are to work hard as believers in Jesus Christ. Work was created prior to the fall. We went back to Genesis chapter 2. We see that God placed Adam in the garden to work it. This is prior to sin. Now, because of sin, work is hard now. But we still press on because it's a gift from God. We work hard as believers in Jesus Christ. Our example is God himself, a man who, a God who is not lazy, but demonstrated a work ethic of creating and sustaining his masterpiece. Jesus Christ was a worker. Majority of his adult life was a carpenter. He worked, we work, and we work hard as Christians. The Bible speaks about laziness and slothfulness. That should not classify us as believers. We are hard workers, but we work unto the Lord. He says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Almost repeating itself once more. We're not men pleasers, we're God pleasers. And we work ultimately unto the Lord. This idea is very similar to verse 17 in chapter 3. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're, they're offerings to the Lord. Am I pleased what I gave God as an offering this past Monday with my work? Was my schoolwork sufficient enough to be offered up as praise? I mean, I want my very best to be given to the Lord. That's our desire as believers in Jesus Christ. Our work should be given unto him. 
Work should be given up. Do you consider your work as worship? Are you consciously considering your daily task at work as an offering to the Lord? Is it pleasing and acceptable? These are questions that we should ask ourselves. Fifthly, Christian workers are to consider the reward. Look at verse 24. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. There's a greater reward. We know as, as we go to work, our employer gives us a check that supplies money so that we can provide for our family. Not every good work will your employer see. Not every good work will your fellow brother and sister in Christ see. Not everyone's going to see all that you do. But there's something good about knowing the fact there's a greater reward. But what it does is it helps us claim what we do. It helps us claim knowing that I will be rewarded on this. The eternal reward, whether positive or negative. Look at what he says in verse 25. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he's done. And there's no partiality. Everything I do counts. You might say, my job has tons of tedious little tasks. Praise God, do all those little tedious tasks to the glory of God. You will be rewarded for that. It's mindful. And and what what Paul is doing here is he's making work, work meaningful. The slave had no inheritance. The bondservant wasn't, wasn't expecting some return. He wasn't going to get anything from his master. He wasn't a child. But a believer in Jesus Christ is a child of the Heavenly Father. And the reward's great. We get him eventually. So the Christian workers works knowing there's a greater reward in the end. And then lastly, Christian workers are to consider their heavenly masters. I stopped shy of it in verse 24. You are serving the Lord Christ. That summarizes all of our work. We have bosses. We have owners of companies. There's people above us. We have have authority over us in many places, but ultimately... We serve Christ. Our allegiance is to Christ. Everything flows out of that. Just as the wife is to submit to her husband and the children obey their parents, it's all based on our service to the Lord Jesus Christ. If we're lacking in any area of our lives, we go back to our relationship with our master, and that is King Jesus If our marriage is struggling, if our parenting is struggling, wherever that is, we must walk back to Christ. Because ultimately, when it comes down to it, every part of our life hinges on our service to the Lord Jesus Christ. He continues with masters. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven, Jesus Christ. You have a master. There's one that's above you. 
He even puts it in the negative in Ephesians 6, 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. And again, you might be the boss. You might be the owner. You're to treat as your heavenly father or, or our heavenly example Jesus Christ showed us as a as a leader, he was kind and generous. He was understanding with those that he was leading and overseeing. We're to consider Christ above all else. Colossians 3, 1 through Colossians 4, 1 describes a life that has been raised with Christ. How does it change us? How does Jesus Christ change us? It doesn't just change our weekend schedule where we attend church on Sundays. No, it changes all of life. It changes my putting off and putting on. It changes the way I view sin. It changes the way I, review, uh, I, I, I view others. It changes the way we respond as husbands and wives, as children and parents. It changes the way I do my work. It changes everything. Jesus Christ changes all of my life. And maybe you're just hanging on to certain parts. Yeah, but I like this the way it is. This is comfortable. This is good to me. No, we're to give all to him. Give all to him. If you're in the room and you are outside of Jesus Christ, I pray that you would come to him in faith and repentance, knowing that your life being redeemed by him it transforms all of it, all of it, for his glory and for his name. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And it's because you first loved us through your son, Jesus Christ, giving him up as an offering to yourself, satisfying your wrath. And Father, giving us his righteousness so that we can draw near to you. A work that, Father, we should never think little of. But, Father, I pray that as we consider our lives, we've moved past uh, the, the relationships within the home and we're moving into our work. Father, I pray that all that we do Monday through Saturday would be, to be done unto your glory and to your name. pray that we'd give praise to you through our words and our deeds and our actions. Father, our church body is made up of many individuals Many seasons of life varying, whether retired or having young children, stay-at-home moms or a worker. Father, I pray that whatever we put our hands to, we would do it knowing that you've called us to work unto you. We're to seek you above all else. Lord, I pray that we'd be a body that represents that. We love you and pray this in Christ's name. Amen.